You are listening to the Meaningful Life with George Haas podcast. For more information, please visit metagroup.org. That's M-E-T-T-A-G-R-O-U-P dot O-R-G. So, uh, I'm George Haas. This is Ben Smith. Say hello. Hi. <laughs> Tonight, I thought the topic would be, when you say exploration, what exactly do you mean? Because I like to talk about uh, exploration from the attachment point of view, and I also like to talk about it from the business point of view, uh, in the sense of how do you explore making your business work better? What is that kind of exploration like, and, and what is the purpose of it? But when you talk about uh, early attachment conditioning, um, one of the things you're talking about is the capacity to explore and the skills of exploring that you would learn from the family system that you grew up in. Um, so I should say learn or not learn, depending on what happens to you in your, in your family of origin. If you have secure uh, attachment, then exploration is already a part of that, and you, you probably learned the skills to do it and can do it. Uh, and if you don't have secure attachment, then um, your capacity for exploration is going to be affected in, in, in different ways. And these uh, methods or these skills or the, the, actually the sense of security that you have in exploration really affects how you pursue uh, exploring and really will also impact entrepreneurialism in a way. Mm -hmm. Could you give me a quick reminder of what secure attachment is? In secure attachment, you think of yourself as somebody who's capable of getting their needs met, and you think of all of the rest of us as very happy to meet your needs. So that you're, you're really, in some sense, uninhibited about presenting yourself authentically and asking and saying what you really think and feel, uh, and your expectation is a positive response from that. Um, can you imagine, if that isn't what you do, what that might be like? To walk into a room and look around and, and think that everybody generally would be interested in you and that you can pick who you think is inter are interesting and you can go talk to them and they'll be receptive uh, to receive you. Or when you walk in a room, do you have a different experience than that? And that would be reflected by your attachment conditioning. But you could also see how that, that would reflect, uh, ref uh, affect your capacity to explore different situations. As an example of that, if you're uh, pre preoccupied, when you walk into a room, you think of yourself as strangely incapable and helpless, but you think of everybody else uh, as people who have figured it out, and if you can just manipulate someone into taking care of you, then you'll be all right. But most of the time in that sense of the world, you abandon your own desire for exploration in favor of proximity to someone else. And so really your exploration is focused on getting someone else to take care of you, not in, in pursuing things that would make you feel happy and satisfied. Is that making sense? If you're dismissive as an adult, which means you're we're anxious avoidant as a child, you have a, 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 a we really call it in Western psychology, a pseudo-exploration, that you're very focused on things that things that have high social value and might give you power or, or 
social position to get the things that you want without having to reciprocate. In secure relationships, there's an understanding that there's a mutual exchange for care, that you take care um, of someone in, in exchange for you taking care of them, they take care of you. And in exchange for you export, uh, supporting their exploration, they take they support you in, in your exploration. So there's a mutual uh, process of that. Is that making sense? So as you begin to understand what your own attachment conditioning is, you can begin to see uh, a difference, say, for instance, of a dismissing person between a pseudo-exploration that actually has the secondary benefit of being able to uh, get for you the things that you want or the people that you want, but it, the, the exploration in itself is not satisfying um, versus the secure exploration where actually it's the exploration itself that's, that's satisfying and the, the secondary benefit of that is that it, it provides a way of being in the world. We, we like to talk about how can you be in the world? How do you make your way in the world? And is, is the way that you do that ultimately fulfilling to you? And does it provide for you to have a social network around you that support you in doing that? And then from a, a business and entrepreneurial perspective, uh, I'm interested in these ideas of exploration. Um, I like to think of entrepreneuring and business as uh, the art of giving and finding a way to, to, to give yourself and entrepreneuring is really about finding that spark or something that does resonate with other people, but that has to be in line uh, with the way that you perceive the world and it's something that's authentic with what you're, uh, what you're doing and creating. If, if uh, you find that uh, things are tilted in different ways, then you're going to have all sorts of interesting uh, issues along the way. So, so I think they work, these ideas really work together because as you uh, go out and spend those 12 hours or 8 to 12 hours a day in business, you're really trying to do this in an authentic way that actually helps people but also works with the system and you, you sort of you. Is that it? Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. So, in, in a shorthand, secure people have their attachment mechanism activated and their exploration system active, so they can do both. They can form relationships that, that, that feels close and supportive, they, they're mutual in their, their caregiving of the other person, and, the, and then they also get to explore what's meaningful to them. That would be ideal. And then with a dismissing person, they tend to deactivate the attachment mechanism and, and keep the, the exploration mechanism functional. But it isn't um, because, uh, in that sense, uh, there's an indifference to uh, relationships or maintaining close relationships. Uh, relationships are often just interchangeable for them. Um, <clears throat> Preoccupied people tend to deactivate the exploration and hyperactivate the attachment mechanism. And then we have the other category of person, which is the, the disorganized person or the, the fearful person. And they have a tendency to deactivate both the exploration and the, the attachment. And so that, um, 
it isn't that any of these things are inherently uh, limiting in terms of the business aspect, but it does have a profound effect on how that happens. Uh, often we see, or the model we see uh, portrayed in media and, and, and uh, so on, is uh, the you know the super dismissing CEO of the big company. They're like sort of cold, analytical, business oriented, indifferent to the effects of of the business on, on the population as a whole. You might uh, say that our environment is in the state that it's in because this is kind of the consideration that we have. That there's not a whole picture there. Um, preoccupied people don't tend to take positions of leadership because they, they don't explore, and, and leaders in business are supposed to explore, entrepreneurial people are supposed to explore and discover the things that they can offer to other people so that they're interested in it. Uh, so preoccupied people are, are, are often self-selecting out of leadership roles because they would prefer to follow somebody else. They don't, their exploration piece is deactivated. And then uh, fearful people without a lot of support from other people don't tend to, to to consistently pursue their exploration because when they get emotionally dysregulated, they withdraw from the pursuit. They deactivate both uh, their attachment and their uh, attachment mechanism. Did I say that? Attachment and exploration. Is that in a nutshell good enough? So then we were talking the last couple of weeks really about meaning and finding meaning. How do you how do you explore in a way that's meaningful to you? Um, if you didn't have a habit or didn't have the support of your uh, caregivers in actually pursuing the things that did have meaning to you. And uh, you may have a sense that uh, high performance is a good thing and, and you get rewarded for it, but were you performing for the interests of your caregiver or were you performing for your own interests? What matter to you? And how do you begin to examine that so that you know that? Any thoughts on that? How do you explore? I mean, I have a question about the relationship between um, a person who's a, you know, a leader of a team or the uh, founder and the relationships with the people that work with him or her, you know, the typically the employees or the team members. Like, how does exploration and attachment affect those relationships? Well, it would depend, in some sense, at who's in charge. So if you had a secure person in charge of the team, they would be interested in pursuing the goals of the company and they would be interested in the people who are on the team and organizing them so that the, the work that all of the team members had was fulfilling to the team members and that they were interested in, uh, in participating in that way. But if you were a dismissing person, you would be indifferent to the people on the team and you would be very results-oriented in terms of how the management went. So there would be a holistic approach and a secure um, leader but a, maybe a more performance-oriented approach uh, and an indifference to the, uh, the state of the individual team members in, in favor of the goal. That's a great answer. 
What about when you, you know, because we all serve some form of customer or client. Right. And then would that apply then to the exploration of those relationships too? Um, do you, is the, what is the, the nature of the, the purpose of your business? Is it, is it oriented toward actually meeting the needs of the customer? Or is it oriented in creating sales for the business? I can give you an example. Uh, in the mortgage industry, I worked for a little bit, and uh, the, uh, at the sales meetings in the morning, they would announce which commissions, uh, which loans uh, would give the salesperson the best commission regardless of whether or not it met the needs of the client and how to sell them. Um, and so we were often selling really inferior products to people when there were much, much better options for them. But we didn't even tell them that there were better options for them because um, that wasn't the business plan. It was not a good fit for me because I didn't like doing it. Um, but. Uh, or for instance, um, there was a sales of um, negotiating with lenders to you know to save people from getting evicted. Uh, I can't remember what the name of the product was. It was sort of a, a loan. Anyways, a legal intervention to negotiate with with the banks to uh, change the terms of the loan so that the people could stay in their houses. But the 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 um, company that was doing the work knew that the, the loans had been bundled and there was no way that the banks could negotiate them. So it was a product that really was completely in the service of the company and had no real benefit for the people that were buying it. Um, but it made a lot of money. Right? <laughs> um, so um, that would be a business that is not in line with the ethical uh, position, I think, that we're advocating. It's also not sustainable. Right? As soon as you burn through the first group of customers, your reputation is so bad you have to change the corporate payment to go out again. Your lawyers are disbarred and all the rest of it. That actually happened, right, with these things. So, How long did the uh, mortgage thing go on? Started in, in 08 and went on for three or four years until the banks succeeded in foreclosing. Yeah, I mean, I, I find that those things do have a hard time sustaining. Right. You know, they can go for a while. Yeah. Um, but the work becomes harder and harder to do. And even on an individual level, if the work is not authentic to you, it just becomes harder and harder and harder. Yeah. I was, I was not effective in that industry because I. I, I don't. <laughs> I'm not a good liar. <laughs> Keep it up. <laughs> Does anyone have any other thoughts on that? I mean, I'm in sales, so I hear it the same way. Do you feel like yours is your, what you're doing is aligned with helping, actually helping people? I try to make it that way. Because it's not a productive way to work in terms of just this flat outcome that you're trying to go for. Like, I honestly think it's best to win people's trust. And at the end, it does end up paying off. Right. Giving people that sense that you're not there just for a commission, but instead as a, you know, 
council. <laughs> right. Here about transactional relationships versus, I guess, I don't know, more sustainable, like long-term relationships. Do attachment styles play into what you're motivated for? For sure. Well, a secure, somebody who has a, a security in their attachment, and understand that attachment isn't the whole game. But it is the early basis of the view of yourself and the view of the world and what you can expect from that. Um, secure people expect things to go well and to be long-lasting, and they understand that that's part of the deal, and so they tend to orient and orient themselves to that. Dismissing people don't attach, so people are interchangeable for them in many ways, and so you they wouldn't. It would never really occur to them that they needed to preserve the relationship. So if we talk about um, this in, in terms of pro-self choices or pro-relationship choices, in order to maintain a relationship with somebody, the predominance of the choices that you make in the interaction need to be pro-relationship where the other person won't bond with you. But if you're dismissing, you don't even consider pro-relationship choices, you just consider pro-self choices. And so relationships are temporary, and you, you view them as temporary. But they've always been that way. It isn't, if you don't have some awakening to that, that's just the way that you think that the world is, and you actually think that everybody is doing that, right? So it doesn't occur to you. You're conditioned in the things that arise in the mind in terms of how we examine and view things is actually based on that conditioning. So some of the work that we do in meditation is to attempt to repair the capacity to imagine or create the capacity to imagine in things that you didn't have before, right? If you never had the experience in relationships where the other person is considered, then it doesn't come to mind when you're in an interaction with someone else. If you grew up in an environment where you were... Uh, taken care of and people are interested in, in, in you and what your actual needs were, then you, you're conditioned to investigate that in, in other people. So it isn't that there's a blame here or a fault, it really is a direct re reflection of your conditioning. If you had a caregiver who every choice that you saw them make was a pro-self choice and that they never made a pro-relationship choice or a choice that supported you, that didn't meet their own needs, then it would never occur to you that that's something to consider, right? And so you're in a position, and, and you know, if you make consistently pro-self choices, you can advance often in some of, some of these organizations, particularly when the organization is oriented around outcomes and not around other things. You know, I, I, I'm a gay man, I'm in my mid-60s, and so when I was coming up, there was enormous prejudice in the workplace for gay people. And so I tended to gravitate toward things like sales because there were hard numbers that I could point to and the, the, that reflexive prejudice that would disqualify me over and over again um, when, it was, when there were no hard numbers to point to uh, was very hard to confront or, or deal with. Um, but in the, in the sales environment where there wasn't actually the, the culture of taking care of the customers that you would have repeat customers and long relationships, it could get very uh, thievy. 
Times have changed. She doesn't want to gay stuff I get away with in my office. When sales were. I know uh, I, I was an early employee at Google and uh, tooting my own horn, uh, I was one of the best salespeople they had ever seen. Uh, handled every, every imaginable large customer for them and doing all sorts of crazy stuff. But yet, I, I wanted a management role and they had no interest in putting me in a management role because I had such little interest in actually promoting other people uh, and doing work through other people. And that was hard for me to understand at that time. Um, yet, I was best in that role, right. of, you know, and they kept me in that role. Um, and I think it was the right thing, actually, now that I, I look back at that. Yeah. Wait, do you mean that that was the right thing because of who you are as a person and what you're best I have very little interest in other people's well-being, uh, growth. Uh, you know, I, I was a gunner, right? I, I put stuff in front of me and I, I would nail it, but I had very little interest in other people. And, um, I, I didn't understand how to work with other people as much as getting things done. And it took me a very long time to understand the difference between the two. I mean, it sounds really simple, but um, in the day-to-day, -day, it took me a long time to understand those ideas and principles. And your goal to be in management was some, like, did you view that as, as a step up? I did because I thought the idea was to, you know, control other people's uh, hearts and minds instead of uh, <laughs> work, working through other What attachment strategy might that be? That, that was just devastation, <laughs> manipulation, uh, taking over. Yeah. Um, I mean, Cheryl Sandberg was one of my first bosses. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. I mean, she, yeah, she hired me. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, she's in the news. A lot. Yeah. So, well, th 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 those two might be the poster child for the dismissal of the poster children. Yeah. I had a question for you. Uh, so, uh, I think a lot about my client work now where uh, there's this idea that uh, I know what's best for the client versus what the client is looking for. So, I'm having a hard, you know, a difficult time sometimes. Do I give them what they're asking for because they're going to be happy, but I know actually they need something on, let's say, a deeper level or a, you know, a more sophisticated understanding of uh, the complex business ideas. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? Um, I, part of it is the role, I guess, that you're in um, and what they're asking for. And, you know, if you see uh, that there's a possibility of offering them something, you can make an inquiry into it. Um, the, um, in the, the mentoring world that I often find myself in, it, it, it's, um, you move out of the position of the professional and the, the client into the, the mentoring in some senses two people traveling and exchanging uh, experiences in terms of that. Usually they, they work with you because you're slightly ahead of them on, on something that they want to explore. Um, one of the analogies is that in a, in a sort of professional client relationship, you're on opposite sides of the map and you're pointing at the map and they're there. In a mentoring role, you move into both being on the same side of the map 
and exchanging and looking at it through their point of view. What would be helpful to them uh, is kind of the, the way to do that. Um, it is uh, a tricky thing to um, mentor someone differently than provide consulting services, I guess I would say, because you're, you're, you're needing to look at the whole person. And then also, um, the main dilemma of being a mentor is that if you don't push hard enough, they don't make enough progress. And if you push too hard, they can't accept the material that you're, you're giving. And so you're constantly making both of those mistakes and, and have to be able to, to tolerate it. Um, is that the role of every teacher? I think it probably is. Yeah. Mentoring is a little bit different than the teacher role, where the teacher role is providing information and evaluating whether or not the person has understood it. Whereas in the mentoring role, you're actually uh, providing the, the support for people. In, in an attachment mentoring uh, mechanism, you're actually uh, supporting and encouraging them to explore authentically. And, um, and that uh, it depends really, uh, what you do depends greatly on what the attachment strategy of the person is. With the preoccupied person, it's, it's really tremendous, the exercises of tremendous patience and encouragement for teen, teeny tiny steps, I mean micro steps. Uh, and it's, it, uh, the, the um, testing is always around how patient are you really? Are you really, be, are you really being patient with me and what's your limit? And so there's a, just an amazing amount of testing to get them to move a foot. With dismissing people, it's um, um, often what you're confronted with is this terrible sadness that they've achieved all of this stuff, but it doesn't mean anything to them, but that they like the social status, they like the money, they like the position that they're in, and they don't want to abandon that for something that has meaning. And so you're, you, 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 you try to convince them to move, uh, to take the skills that they've developed, even if they don't like the skills that they've developed, and move that into a direction of more meaning, or a, a combination between some activity that produces meaning and some that supports what they've already achieved. Um, one of the things about meaningful exploration is that it's something that you want to do every day, part of every day. And, and so um, how do you organize your life in such a way that part of the day is spent engaged in something that has real meaning? And that really inflates and supports the, the whole life. Uh, whereas we're sort of oriented toward, you know, toughing it out in these periods that don't actually have any meaning because that will provide the resources to then pursue something that has meaning, but that, that's not very sustainable in the, in the long run. Particularly as you get older, because you don't have the energy to do the thing that's meaningful after having done all of the stuff that you needed to do to, to maintain the position. If you're um, uh, disorganized, then 
the, the support is often around simply engaging in an activity that isn't completely, so, completely isolated, that you actually make social connections. The disorganized people, even if they, they do well, they live very solitary lives, and so you need to really encourage them to make meaningful connections, and they don't, um, they're fearful that they'll be exploited or hurt or um, tricked, and so it's very difficult to get them to make the leap um, and then there's so much anxiety in it that they rush in to relationships. If you rush in too fast into relationships, you don't actually know who you're getting involved with. And uh, they don't tend to, to work as well as relationships where you go slowly and build trust. But if you don't have the internal capacity to hold the experience of developing trust and uh, delaying gratification, you'd, you'd, uh, you know the... The psychological test of the marshmallows. You know that one. Um, I'll give you one marshmallow now that you can eat, but if you can wait ten minutes, I'll give you two marshmallows. And uh, the initial studies show that the people who could wait ten minutes uh, um, did much better in life. That was the supposition. They, like all of these studies, excluded for class. Uh, poor people ate the marshmallow right away because they weren't sure that there was going to be two marshmallows in ten minutes. <laughs> and they did less well in life because poor people in our culture do less well in life because it's stacked against them from, from doing well, which has nothing to do with their ability to wait ten minutes for two marshmallows, right? So it's a, the way that we create these uh, social constructs about it. Um, you know, uh, I was, um, I went to the uh, psychoanalytic conference on misogyny. Um, and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Quite a sentence. <laughs> <laughs> and I was so, it reminded me of college where radical feminism was right out there. And I, I really loved that aspect of it. Um, but do you know how long it, um, how um, the, the stereotype of women not being able to work and not having uh, uh, not having the skills or whatever it is necessary to achieve at a high level, how long that societal myth has been put out there and how, uh, how much force there is in, in uh, the contemporary uh, culture to, to reestablish that. All of these things, these conditioned views of ourselves, will limit the, the pursuit of um, your exploration. Right? If, you, if you think that you can't do it because of your sex, you won't do it. If you think you can't do it because of your race, you won't do it, or not welcoming. Um, you know, sexual orientation, gender, all of that stuff affects your sense of safety and your willingness then to explore. One of the reasons I like the entrepreneurial side of things is it's, you can be smaller and you can pursue things that are quite niche in a way and make enough out of it that it, it supports the way that, that you want to be in the world. So 
Make good sense. Making uh, the idea of working for a, a company and being so-called an employee versus being an entrepreneur, do you find that different attachment styles tend to gravitate toward being an entrepreneur? Um, what do you think, Dan? Uh, no, I, I think that it's, it's across the spectrum. Um, <clears throat> I think people have different motivations across the board. Because, um, you know, I think in a lot of the, the small businesses that I deal with, it's small, you know, a few people, five, six people sometimes. And then other people have this idea of entrepreneurialism is that I'm going to start a company, I'm going to have hundreds of employees and we're going to become a billion dollar company. I find the vast majority of founders want validation for, for being smart. And that they want to be looked at and someone to say, you know what, you, you are smart. Well, that is the mystery of why I'm an entrepreneur. <laughs> but but don't, they, don't, don't they deserve credit for having an imagination and turning uh, a mental idea into something tangible? in the world in terms of a business or I mean I think there's a lot of credit that's due for absolutely. that absolutely I'm just simply saying I'm not judging you I'm simply, oh, simply I, saying the motivation I find for most people is it, it, it's they've never had that and they really and they really are looking for that and they in general have feel slighted or misunderstood <laughs> or uh, far and away I mean I, like I said I, I was a VC and an investor I saw I've seen a, not a million, but lots and lots and lots of founders and startups and companies and young people and older people. And that seemed, to me, that seems to be the primary motivation. More than making money, more than helping the world, more than helping a segment of people, more than, and it, it was, it's, it's really motivation that they have been misunderstood. So in some, in some, some sense, what you're saying is you need to luck out with a dad who says that you're stupid. <laughs> <laughs> I happen to think that, like, um, one, my life is better because I'm able to stop for a second and realize that a situation has to be explored before there's any kind of decision to be made. Whereas, you know, I come from a childhood where I created stories and believed them based on people's behaviors. And so I just completely went by the story that I had created in my mind. And by virtue of that, the world is a very different place than if you take the time to listen, have patience, explore, take a moment, have some breathing room between you and somebody else, especially in business, and then see, you know, I mean, I'd still pay attention to cues and um, signifiers that lead that I'm that I'm going to be okay, but I I don't walk in. I mean, it's the rare occasion now where I walk in and I just completely own my story and completely uh, and and just not uh, believe what the other person is saying at all. Um, I, I think it's a it's a, it's a it's a better world to be in letting people because one of the things I've learned is everyone I work with everyone in my life has a different attachment strategy 
So it's so not it's not so much personal anymore. The, the way they're behaving behaving with me or in the world, it's like okay, well, I I don't know what their attachment strategy is. I know what mine is, but I don't know what theirs is. But it but it I don't really have to know what theirs is. I just know that it's different. And so, therefore, there's this spaciousness between me and somebody else that I never really was able to have before. So you you bring up an interesting point around attachment and how how that creates views, right? Um, and also in this process of development, spiritual development, um, uh, which is one of the subjects here, the first. Uh, thing to do is to begin to understand that you have a mind state and other people have a mind state and they're different. And the reason that they're different is because your conditioning is different. So we're all sitting in a room, we're all having essentially a, 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 a contained experience, but each of us is experiencing this differently because each of our conditioning is different. So everything that happens here has a different meaning to us. And the way that we assemble reality is that we look around and take snapshots of what's going on. and they, they have value to us and we string them along and create meaning out of those, we would say in Buddhism, mind moments. But we have a hierarchy of things that have value so that our mind is naturally drawn to the things that have high value. And because everybody's list of what has high value is different, we're all taking different snapshots of the whole picture, these little individual pieces of the picture, and then creating the narrative of what's going on out of those individual snapshots, not about what's happening. We can't possibly track everything that's happening. Uh, we just can track the things that we focus on. You notice your, your focused attention is very narrow, right? It just grabs things. And then you have this string of mind moments, which informs the meaning of what's going on here. But everybody's string is different, so everybody's sense of what's happening is different. And so that to go into a, a dialogue with somebody else and to understand that their point of view is going to be different from yours is very different than thinking that you know what's going on and everybody's having the same experience of that. And so if somebody doesn't have that experience, there's something wrong with them because they've missed it. They've missed what's valuable because they don't value what you value. Creates a, 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 a sense of separateness or otherness, which is the, that attachment mechanism, which every time you walk into a room, your attachment mechanism evaluates us and them. And you gravitate toward the us, and you gravitate away from the them. So is, are there certain tools that you can use to help like the dismissive and the, like, the different styles kind of connect better? Or are there certain, like, do you have any suggestions for that? Like say I'm working with someone that's with, with like a client that's like a dismissive style and I'm like a secure style so that we can be like, seen it from their point of view, but where I can help connect, like help um, So... Um, dismissing adults tend to be not, they, they um, deactivate the attachment mechanism, so they deactivate the value of another relationship. They also tend to deactivate their emotional experience. 
they do this for good reason because they were so so neglected as children. It was so painful to be in the state of so much neglect that they learned to consciously repress their emotional experience. So in the beginning, uh, you have to encourage them to explore their uh, emotional experience consciously. So I would offer a meditation technique, which was actually the technique that I was uh, we're going to do in. 15 minutes. Um, dismissing people at the core is tends to be a terrible, uh, I call it terrible sadness, but it really, it's, it's the, the psychological term for it is anaclyptic depression, terrible sadness. If you look at the history of a child who's neglected, do you know how you got attention when you were a child? We all do this. So, first you look as cute as you possibly can, hoping that someone will take care of you. And in secure homes, that usually works. People are paying attention to you, they see you looking really cute, and they respond to you. But if you're in a home that neglects you, you can be as cute as you want, and you'll get no response. And then, Children look confused. I've just looked as cute as I possibly can, and nobody came. It's so confusing. I still do that. <laughs> <laughs> That's I got the more confusion. <laughs> I can't believe it doesn't work. <laughs> Ten years ago, George. <laughs> <laughs> then what, they, what kids do is whimper. Have you ever been standing around with a group of parents, the whole cacophony of kids running this way and that way, and all of a sudden a parent perks up because they've heard the whimper of their child in the noise and run off? Because they know if they don't get there fast, that whimper will turn into an intermittent cry, the intermittent cry will turn into a continuous cry. If they don't get there by the time they're continuously crying and they go to tantrum mode, it will take 20 or 30 minutes to calm them down because of the massive dump of neurochemicals that create the tantrum that the liver then has to filter out. No battery. But if the kid is tantruming and nobody comes, the whole system shuts down. Mm -hmm. And that's the, the state of the childhood of the dismissing adult. Nobody came even when they were tantruming and the whole system just shuts down. So when I say cavalierly that you want to get a dismissing person to touch into their moment-by-moment -moment emotional experience, part of that is going to be that terrible sadness that's stored in the body. It will be hard for them to do it. And then uh, some uh, kids in that uh, boat were ashamed for having the attachment need in the first place. So in addition to the terrible sadness, there's the corrosive shame that they also would have to touch into. Now, if you can get them to do that, then they can just be with it without needing to get away from it. Then that whole defensive structure that they have just collapses on its own because so they don't need it anymore. But you have to be willing to support them in that exploration um, and also the the deactivation of it. So with uh, 
highly dismissing people when they deactivate you need to step out of the uh, exploring that stuff and move into some kind of vigorous physical activity that's competitive the reason for that is because competition produces emotion and in order for them to compete well they have to turn their emotional system back on so if you can get them into a vigorous physical activity that they want to win at their emotional system will turn back on and then they'll come out of the dismissing shutdown so you have to see up oh, the end of trying to, to, to deal with this right now let's go play tennis <laughs> or whatever it is I'll race you to the corner you know whatever it is that you engaged in and then they're back and then you can reason with them so it's an interesting thing when you notice that they become super logical then then they shut off their emotion and you can't attempt to reach them emotionally about anything because they don't have access and if you point out that they're they're not empathetic or not emotional they get enraged because it it creates a a sense of that they're defective in some way which they can't tolerate Um, it's kind of the reverse of the preoccupied person. They they get so reactive emotionally that their their cognitive mind shuts off. And you can't reach them cognitively. You have to reach them uh, and be emotionally regulating for them. You all have a series of skills that you learned in your in your family system of how to regulate your emotions. And some of them will be good, and some of them probably you should stop using at the nearest opportunity. <laughs> but you can't just stop them. They're emotionally regulating, and you cannot not emotionally regulate. The body-mind will regulate with the tools that it has. You have to replace them, which is where the meditation comes in. You need to develop an alternative strategy for emotionally regulating, in order to abandon a, uh, a not great skill for regulating. Just curious, I have a lot of thoughts going on, great talk, great a lot going on. My, my, my question now is, is there ever a plurality of the three, in, in one person you'll have one, two, or three in strategies? Yeah, was, as far as being dismissive or being um, preoccupied, I mean, can that come and go, I mean, within one person? Throughout what, a day, throughout what, a week. What you're really describing is disorganized. That's this okay. Disorganized would be a mixture. Right. Gotcha. So they could show certain attachments, secure attachment at times. It's a good question. We're talking about organized versus disorganized attachment. In organized attachment, you have a go-to strategy and you tend to go there. So if you have a dismissing strategy and something activates your attachment mechanism, you tend to go dismissing. If you're preoccupied, you tend to go if you're secure, you tend to go secure, and if you're disorganized, it's completely unpredictable where you'll go. Ah. And, and for the people that you're in relationship to, it makes you unreliable. If you have organized attachment strategy and, some, and you know that if you say something to somebody in that way that they're going to go dismissing, 
then you have a secure mean, I mean, you have a reliable means of understanding how to present something to them so that they don't react uh, in a bad way. But if you have somebody who's disorganized, you don't ever get away, you don't ever really find a way of doing it that's predictable in terms of how they'll react to it. And so uh, it's very eggshelly around presenting a difficult topic. And she, they could be totally cool. They could be totally dismissive. They could be completely off the walls, preoccupied. And you could do the same thing three times and you could get three different responses from it. That's why they call it disorganized. Some One group calls it disorganized, another group calls it complex. My understanding is that humans would prefer predictability even over uh, good behavior or, or uh, positive outcome. Right. You know, I work, I work with somebody who I identify as uh, disorganized and I was working on my own problem and she came into the room and she just you know, did that, like disorganized. And I was, I just turned to her and I said, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, and she snapped out of it and realized she wasn't talking to the person she thought she was. Oh. And I said, I don't, I, but I, but I didn't, you know, I didn't push her away. I just was like, I, you know, I'm not the person who has answers for you right now for this. Please go find them. Right. You know, and and so anyway, it was, I happen to, well, it's the trauma line, isn't it, that separates disorganized from yeah. organized? And so I feel like I know that about her and I'm going to conduct myself. I, I What would a secure do? Right. You know, a secure would kind of stay away or out of their path. Right. That's what they do. Unless you really, unless, you know, I mean, you're dealing with another human being, so there has to be some compassion and empathy. But my transactions with this particular person, very limited, because I know that probably a secure person would just never go back to that for something. Well, secure people... You need to be reliable for a secure person in order for them to put energy into the relationship, and that you don't get many chances to be unreliable. And the disorganized people are very unreliable. Often, if they're on the avoidant end, sweet as can be, just total sweetie pies, and you'd love to be in a relationship with them, except they're so unreliable, you can't count on them for anything. Secure people, know, they don't do that. It doesn't make sense to them. Now understand, this is conditioning again. They've always had people show up for them without a problem. They've never not had anybody show up for them without a problem. So when you don't show up, it's a problem for them because they don't know how to deal with it. And so they just don't. You're not reliable. I'm, the world is filled with reliable people who would be happy to take care of me. Why would I put energy into that? They don't. Um, so secure people tend to go with secure people. That's the most common coupling. The second most common is a dismissing person with a preoccupied person. The dismissing person is a kind of solo, independent explorer, uh, and the preoccupied person pitches their wagon to that because they're totally willing to abandon their exploration. The dismissing person doesn't reciprocate or make space for the exploration of the preoccupied person or anyone else. 
but it's only the preoccupied person who's willing to, to go along with those terms. Those relationships can be stable if there's enough care for the preoccupied person, but more often they burn out and then get replaced. They burn out and they get replaced. That's the, the dismissing. You know, the, the preoccupied puts their person puts their foot down and says, you have to reciprocate care, and the dismissing person keeps going. And, and uh, disorganized people are the ones that are the most alone. So very high rate of addiction in disorganized people. 70% of disorganized people have addiction because social isolation is so painful. But the only way that they can sustain the social isolation is by uh, killing the pain. High level of high level of addiction also in dismissing people, thirty percent of that category. Very low in, in secure people and very low in preoccupied people. What do you think? Shall we just meditate? Yeah. Are you up for it? Yes. <laughs> All right. Yes. Let's do it. I want to do the noting feeling states technique, which is a vipassana technique. Um, noting feeling states technique is where you learn to track the moment by moment emotional experience in the body. This is very important in, in terms of emotional regulation. It's like the one of the number one all time skills that you can learn to regulate your emotion and also to understand what's happening. Now, some of you will be able to do this quite well because you grew up in a household where your emotions were valued and mirrored and supported and you, you know what they feel like and you, you know what their names are. Um, some of you will have no experience at all of emotions in your body and it, it may freak you out to discover that you actually don't have any sense of emotion in your body. Maybe you have an awareness of emotions intellectually, but not a felt sense in the body. This is a good piece of information to have, and you can work with that and invite <coughs> awareness of the emotion in. Some of you may have a totally chaotic internal experience of emotion, which is completely undifferentiated, and you'll know that there's a lot of emotion going on, but you won't be able to pick out which one it is. And so this is also good information to have because then you can begin to evaluate which emotional experiences you're having and then bring attention and regulation to them. Uh, some of you may have uh, an awareness of these, of the terrible sadness or the terrible dread or the corrosive shame. Um, and if you stay toward the surface of the body, it'll be easier to to manage those. Um, is that making sense? Uh, that, that's the disclaimer. There could be like a partial, like some feelings might be a bright red, whereas some you never learned. Right. Totally. That, yeah. There are 220 words in the English language to describe discrete emotional states. If you grew up in my household, there were three. <laughs> <laughs> Anger, fear, and sadness. <laughs> In my household, uh, there was 
happiness, but it was extremely suspect and likely to get punished immediately. <laughs> My mother used to say to me, are you drunk? This is what I would be like, nine years old. I would say, no, I'm happy. And so that was the kind of dialogue that we had. <laughs> I think in my household there was only happiness and sadness uh -huh. and no anger whatsoever, ah. which is completely foreign to me. Oh, um, until anger uh, didn't exist. It would be lumped into sadness. Oh, yeah. My mother was. Uh, she would explode with anger, and then there would be no limit to the violence that was about to pursue. And then with my dad, he would go cold, and then you didn't exist, and it would go on for months. I mean, cold anger. And I mean, you could literally yell at him, and he, it was as if you weren't, weren't there, it was so shut down. So, anyway. You all have your conditioning around your emotional lives, and this technique is likely to point to that, but then you want to be able to regulate your emotions so that you can move skillfully in the world, right? Move skillfully in relationship to other people. Adults tend to be able to evoke in the other person intense emotional responses, and you need to be able to hold the experience of that of the other person in order to be in an intimate relationship with them. Your exploration is likely to produce intense emotional experiences in you, and when you come rushing back to your social network for them to prop you back up, you need to be able to hold the intense emotional experience of someone else so that you can help compassionately stand them back up when they get knocked sideways by their exploration and if you can do that then they, they'll reciprocate and do that for you and if you can't do that then you will begin to limit the intensity of the emotional response that you will allow yourself which has a tendency to curtail your exploration more and more. And if it's really a low level of emotion that you can tolerate, you can't tolerate much exploration. And so you, you come into a place of despair often around the meaning of life because you can't explore enough to find the meaning. Is that making sense? So this, it's, it's totally worth doing even if in the beginning it's challenging to do. Here we go. All right. How did that go? Good. There was a heavy, like, um, I sensed fear and then it dissipated. Um, it had a lot to do with my heartbeat tonight, the, the heaviness or the lightness of it. That's a that's the vibration in the body, correct? That uh, the heartbeat. Well, it can signify emotional content, can it? Yeah, it, you certainly can affect your heart rate depending on right. what the emotional response is. It's part of the sensation of it. Yeah. So, a like a heavier beating heart, faster beating heart, could mean something to somebody, right? Versus Fear. not feeling it, or right. Uh -huh. This is the thing in meditation where you know having like a finer sense and like the visceral sense of emotion kind of like amplifies it, makes it 
Intensifies it? Yeah. Yeah, sure. It, it takes up more space in your awareness. So that could be it. Um, uh, also, stilling the body and, uh, and bringing your attention inward can intensify it because there, there are other, it's not being masked by other sensations in the body. And that's and your attention is not divided. Mm-hmm. So. Is that an intention of the meditation? The intention of the meditation is a few things. One is to develop concentration so that you can place your attention wherever you want to put it. It's also to develop sensory clarity so that you know what what's actually happening clearly. Mm-hmm. And then the last piece is that you you have equanimity with the experience of whatever it is, and you can simply allow it. I suppose it's the equanimity part that's the hardest. I find that the equanimity part varies quite a bit, but also tends to have momentum. So in the beginning, it may be difficult to collect and settle, but then doing the meditation for a period of time tends to reinforce that. In Shinzen, I'm a student of Shinzen Young's, and in his world it's called CCE. So concentration, clarity, and equanimity is, is a meditation state. In traditional Vipassana, it's uh, um, concentration, clarity, mindfulness. So mindfulness means awareness of the present moment. And then uh, energy, uh, clarity, mindfulness, and concentration is the traditional uh, Theravada way of describing a meditative state those four elements. Shinzen calls mindfulness CC&E, so he gets all four in there, although he doesn't direct your attention so much to mindfulness. But in technical meditation terms, mindfulness means present moment awareness. In our culture, it's taken on a lot of different kinds of meanings. Inside and out, correct? Um, in the Satipatthana Sutta, which is the main description of meditation, the instruction is mindfulness of inside, mindfulness of outside, and mindfulness of inside and outside. Uh, you could call that mentalizing. So you, how do you know what you are thinking and feeling? How do you know what someone else is thinking and feeling? In Buddhism, outside means other people. There's only ourselves and other people in, in the, the cosmology of, of Buddhism. In, 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 the sense of this plane of existence. Um, <clears throat> so how do you track what you are thinking and feeling? How do you track what the other person is thinking and feeling? And how do you track what how what they're thinking and feeling affects you and how what you are thinking and feeling <coughs> affects them? That would be mindfulness, the complete picture of mindfulness. But, you know, it's also a great model for human interaction because uh, if you're close to somebody and they come in and they're in a snit it has an immediate impact on you right they come in and they're joyful it has an immediate or often has an immediate impact on you we tend to be biased toward negative events our whole physical structure is oriented toward danger and if there's time, we can get to joyful. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you look at the neuroscience aspect of it, it takes three eighths of a second for it, for the body to pr- process a, 
a dangerous experience and it takes a half a second to process a pleasurable experience. Something that's coded as dangerous takes half the intensity and half the length of time to create a mind moment and a pleasurable event takes twice the intensity and twice the duration and more than twice the processing speed in order for it to enter consciousness. And negative experience supersedes everything in the queue. We could have a hundred pleasant moments and the dangers will, will just jump to the head of the line each time. So we're totally biased for that in terms of our physiology. And so you can get it, uh, you know, uh, preoccupied people, for instance, uh, use problems as a way of connecting. And so they're, they're really highly organized around scanning for problems. And if they can't find one, they're, they're often willing to invent them uh, because that's how they connect. So you can also begin to understand your conditioning. Did you grow up in a safe environment so you didn't have to be hyperactivated, hyper uh, alert and scanning the environment all of the time? Or did you grow up in a dangerous, frightening environment where you constantly had to be on alert and scanning and managing the adults around you so that you would be safe as a child. That's, that then conditions the, 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 the biology of your body toward that. Uh, and then you, you have to uh, know that that's the case and then begin to work to, to balance it so that you can have the positive experiences. Everybody able to do the technique okay? touch into to the body and have a sense of what's there. Yes, and like the stewardess at the row with the window. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It was it was easy at first for me, uh-huh. but then I felt my mind wandering and thinking about my childhood, and it all came back in full circle because this this house reminds me of the house that I grew up in and it has a red door. So, (laughs) I mean, you know, it just, it just was fascinating to really hear what you just said because it was a dangerous environment for me at some times and I'm just learning now the ramifications of the way that I attach to people and the way that I've been interacting professionally, socially, and I feel like just seeing this event happening tonight is a miracle, you know, and I I really needed this at this point of my life, and I'm really looking to change things, to to change my mental path of how I see the world and not to be so fearful. Good. So this points to an interesting thing about the way human babies come into the world. We're born prematurely in comparison to other species. For instance, a great ape is born with the, the physical capacity of an 18-month-old human baby. This is a big difference, right? Our brains are partially developed, much less so than other species. And, and our brain, our actual physical structure of our brain grows in relationship to the environment that we grew up in. So if you grew up in a dangerous environment, it totally affects the structure of your brain and how it operates and it will operate much differently than than the brain of somebody who grew up in a secure environment. And so when we begin to talk about understanding our conditioning and how it affects us, and also understand that it's affected the physical 
capacity and structure of your equipment. And that when we make these changes, we don't get to change that part. If we have a hyperactivating brain, we have a hyperactivating brain and that's what we have and it's not going to change that much. What's going to change is the tools that you have to operate it so that you can, you can recognize the activation and settle it very quickly uh, in a way that you couldn't before because you didn't know how to do it. So you learn all of these new tools, but the fundamental structure is the same. I think that this is it's something important to understand that when we say that you're going to work toward uh, secure attachment, we don't mean that you're going to work toward a native secure brain. We're, we're going to take your preoccupied brain or your dismissing brain or your disorganized brain and you're going to develop the skill set so that you can function in a secure way with the brain that you have. It's, a, it's an important distinction because if you thought that you could somehow regrow your brain entirely so that you could have a native secure brain, it would be uh, self-defeating and, and just colossally disappointing. <laughs> but that whole notion of like neuroplasticity, I guess that has its limits. It does because the, the, the structure is so, uh, you know, you're born with a brain stem that's pretty well intact. You have a midbrain, which is partially formed in your uh, uh, frontal cortexes are not formed much. When you're born, your right brain is on, but your left brain is off because it's not developed enough and then it grows in response to the environment that you're in. And so uh, it's too much to shift that. So I like to think of it as a software upgrade rather than a hardware upgrade. Or as my friend Jimmy says, it's not hardware, it's wetware. <laughs> but I think as a therapist in relation with from an attachment perspective that there can be a reparative experience within the context of a dyadic yeah, relationship. And it gives that person an opportunity to be seen differently and to feel differently in a safe, secure, grounded environment. Right. Which, if you can hold space for that, which depends on the therapist, I guess, right? One of the... the um also, the aspect of it is the, the, the attachment relationship itself. Um, so, for instance, uh, some literature says that if you're preoccupied, you should be looking for a dismissing therapist. <laughs> because that's a good bond. If you're dismissing, you should be looking for a preoccupied therapist. Um, so that if you're, you know, Disorganized, you should be looking for a secure uh, therapist. Um, so that, that, that also has a, a, a feature to it. When you're talking about a, uh, that the relationship is the instrument of repair, then you have to have these productive relationships in, 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 uh, in, in that dyadic experience, or they're not, they're not repaired, I think. Yeah, so you're saying that the it's important that the therapist be aligned with the appropriate attachment style of the client. Right. Yeah. But if it's a software upgrade, then the therapist can adapt, right? Um, 
maybe. Um, I think that um, it's an interesting debate, and I and I have it quite a lot because on the meditation side, we're really sort of biased toward the protocol side of things and and, and doing uh, trainings, uh, meditations. Uh, Training in order to, 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 to shape the, the changes. And in uh, therapy, since it's not uh, procedurally oriented in that way, that it's more about the effect of the relationship. Um, and uh, it's a fierce, energetic debate. Yeah. Um, my, uh, my understanding is that, and I, I, maybe I'm off where you can offer insight that we reenact in uh, our upbringing over and over and over again uh, and we'll seek it out especially in romantic relationship in order to in some sense solve for the original puzzle so to speak you mean repetition compulsion like the need to repeat something or like my attachment style that's my understanding of the world and, and sort of the opposite I, I will seek out the you know, of that same relationship with somebody else in order to. Well, I can give you an example. I think of what you're talking about. In my session this week, or last week, with my guy, uh, he was describing a relationship that I have currently that's falling apart. And I thought, wait a minute, you're describing my mother, <laughs> not the person I'm in relationship to that's falling apart. And he, he, he started to laugh. I said, oh, fuck, I've done it again. I've picked my mother again. <laughs> I, it took me a long time to realize I just was dating variations of my mom over and over again until I got it right. But it, 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 and, and, you know, this is that sort of creepy Freudian Thing. It's not actually your mother you're dating, it's the care that they represent that yeah. reminds you of them, that means love to you. That's what you're dating. Yeah. <laughs> I never feel like my partner is... Uh, I never, I think of him as very different, but right. that's just... Well, I wouldn't have thought that but at he's all. A pre, but he's a preoccupied, right. which makes perfect. I mean, that's, that's a marriage right. made in heaven. Right. For dismissive hell. <laughs> um, I just thought it was hilarious. Oh my god! I, 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 you're describing the dynamics of our relationship, and I'm thinking about my mother and I'm the first time in the relationship. Oh, here we go again. Um, so, everybody okay? Uh, we offer the class on a Donna basis. Uh, the, we don't actually have a suggested Donna. Donna is a Pali word that means generosity. So uh, I'll put a hat out. Uh, you contribute through the, through an act of generosity for yourselves. Uh, generosity is really the, the opening of the heart, the opening of the path of meditation. Um, and thank you for coming. We'll see you. Thanks. And you take Venmo and all Venmo this. and cards. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. <coughs> yeah. Right? I told him, you're my mom. She goes, well, guess what? You're my mom. <laughs> <laughs> totally.
Let's see here. Very slow. 